The brain of a teenager is wired to take risks and to learn from mistakes. Yet in school, we rarely give teenage students that opportunity. Today we'll talk with a teacher who helped create a democratic school where all students and teachers share in decision-making and learn through the process. Hello, and welcome to the Education for a Better World podcast. I'm Mike Soskal. And I'm Diane Smokorowski. Each week, we will bring you conversations with some of the most dynamic thought leaders in education. This week's episode is sponsored by GoToScience, a tool that allows our youngest learners the opportunity to learn by going on adventures without leaving their classroom. We know that education will be the driving force for a bright, optimistic future. On each show, we'll introduce you to innovative ideas, we'll stretch your thinking, and help you see ways to empower your students to affect positive change in the world. We are thrilled that you are coming along with us on this journey. Let's dream big. Just a quick note before we start today's show. If you are headed to ISTE this week, Diane and I would love to meet up with you. You can come and see us Tuesday uh, at 7.30 in the morning. We're going to be in the social media lounge with some free coffee and a light nosh for anyone that wants to join, talking about sparking empathy in your classroom and global collaboration. And then later that day, from 10 o'clock to noon, we have a poster session that you can stop by and see us at. So if you're at ISTE, come by and see us. This conversation originally aired in December, and to this date, it is still one of the most thought-provoking and interesting interviews that Diane and I have done uh, so far on the podcast. So we hope you enjoy it. Today's guest is a world expert in democratic education. He's the founder of the Sands School in Devon, England, and was named a top 50 finalist for his work by the Global Teacher Prize. Sean Bellamy, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Lovely to hear you. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about democratic education? What exactly does that term mean? Sure, we'd love to. So what you've got to do is imagine that if you were to design a school, and instead of designing it with adults for children, you designed it with children for children. And what you do from the very beginning of a democratic school is you ask the opinions of all the participants. Guess what? In schools, the most numerous, populous user of it happens to be the children who are very rarely asked their opinion about anything. So our sense was that if we started a school and designed something for the first time possibly in world history where adults and children sat together and designed the school in cooperation, we'd be really interested to see what it looked like in its design and then its, in, its, in its working. And at the heart of that was the young people wanted to have a say in everything. It didn't mean they wanted to control everything, but they wanted their opinion heard and they wanted to hear what we were doing on their behalf in, say, finances. So a democratic school at its heart is a community of people who are sharing information and listening. How did these principles come into play when you were forming the Sands School? I, I started working at the age of 23 as naive, egocentric idiot, um, working in an amazing progressive school called Dartington Hall School, which had been at the forefront of education, certainly progressive education for the best part of 50 years. And when I joined, I had a sense as a young teacher that uh, it would have a very long life. And so I start my teaching career having had these 
pretty amazing experiences actually as a young teacher trainer, meeting teenagers out in residential weeks and realizing, bizarrely, unlike many teachers, I actually really like teenagers. And so I looked for a job where I would be able to work alongside teachers, not just as a teacher, but as a mentor, as a house parent, as a facilitator. And I found this job at this wonderful, wacky, progressive school and thought, well, maybe that's it for a while. And within a term, I was told, actually, this school is closing because it's had tragedy after tragedy and can't manage its finances. Now, as a young teacher, I think to myself, well, that's probably just an opportunity. I'll do my trial by fire as a, as a, as a young educator. And then if it all falls apart, I can go elsewhere. What I didn't expect to happen was that I would actually feel terribly responsible for the young people who were then going to become refugees of this school. It was going to close, and having maybe spent eight years of their life there, often as boarding students, they were going to be thrown out literally on the streets because these kids didn't want to go into conventional schools. So I worked with two other teachers, and we sat with some of those refugees, and we designed a new school a school which might take some of the brilliant ideas from current education of the time and maybe improve on some of the things where children weren't heard. So the democratic school starts in 87 with two years of design with children. It wasn't something that was done just in a summer in the garden, but it did finish up with a final meeting of all the young students who were going to join from age 11 to 16. And they sat with us and we formalized how this school would work without a head teacher. We legally got the government to accept all the powers normally with a head teacher would sit with the school meeting, which are the voting members of the school. That's everyone who's a member from teacher to cook, cleaner, and student. And as soon as that was heard, we began to attract students from all over the country. And we had one young girl just get on a train from London, travel three and a half hours, told her dad, I'm going to Sam. And that's the school for me. And we began to be inhabited by these young mavericks. So the origin was really, really sad closure of one school, which like a phoenix out of the ashes, we were able to start something else. In Kansas, we are looking at the redesign of education. So it's like a first time opportunity for teachers and students to come together and decide what kind of school do we want to have. What sorts of questions did you prompt the students during those design years that formulated your direction? So I suppose we broke it up into a number of categories. Something as simple as, do you want lessons to be compulsory? Because one of the fundamental questions that we're dealing with in education is about choice. What happens to the brain of the human when they engage in the act of choice? compared to the act of compulsion. What the children said initially was, well, actually compulsion sounds a really interesting thing because we're a bit frightened that we won't choose good education. We won't choose to be fully engaged because if they'd come from other schools where they'd been disengaged and felt cynical about teachers and education, the first thing that children often do when given choice is to do nothing. That seems to be part of the cathartic process that happens when you actually relearn what it is to be a self-sufficient learner. So there's a fundamental question. How do we approach your learning? Do we make it an act of choice or do we make it an act of compulsion? 
that's a brilliant question to start with. You might want to talk about, you know, what parts of school life do you feel you need to have responsibility for? In the UK, we, people talk about uniform, which clearly isn't an issue in the States. But for us, because uniform and uniformity went hand in hand, but often it also goes with the story of privilege because a uniform can remove a sense of privilege for some kids. And as children are fascinated by their own personal presentation, I think it's something we had to look at about would we have some sort of code of conduct around dress? And what the children said was actually sort of is all opportunity that if we're allowed to wear what we want when it goes wrong, isn't that a really great opportunity for us to talk to the person who comes inappropriately dressed? So basically everything is, everything is possible to talk about, but I think because we're schools, at the heart of it must be how do you feel your education be presented? Do you think it's something you should be obliged to do? Or is it something that is really an issue for every child to design their own curriculum within what's available? Sean, I want to I dig into something you said in the beginning of that answer and uh, revolving around choice and, and compulsory education. And I would think that the majority of teachers who have been in a traditional system for the majority of their career are probably really frightened by the thought of giving up that much control to students. Yet you designed an entire school on that very concept. Could you talk a little bit about that process of giving over control to the youngsters within the education system? Yeah, and it's not as if it's a thing that's particularly easy for, for us to consider as well, because if you have children who've been made cynical by their previous experience, one's really frightened that what will happen is that they will disengage and get, get a rhythm of being in school, which is essentially recreational, which can be totally fulfilling, because I've watched it happen occasionally, it stands, where a child doesn't re-engage with conventional education. So it's not as if I'm saying... You know, this is an assured fix and antidote for a child who's disengaged. But sort of running alongside that argument is if we think about choice as choice scaffolded and supported by sensitive teachers who know the child, and it moves from choice to something like what I'd call nurtured risk. It's a risk that the child may make mistakes, but what you're trying to do, I'm sure, as an educator, is allow a child to progress and become more and more capable. And part of that journey might be disengagement and doing nothing. But for most of us, I'm sure we all believe that the way you progress is by facing challenges, facing difficulties, pushing through. So if we see it more as nurtured risk, that what we're doing is as adults where, where our radar is out, for those moments when we can re-engage a child or work with the child who's totally ready to go. And a lot of it, therefore, is that we're talking about adults who are very conscious and mindful of the nature of each of their children. I would talk about it as this thing I think about is sort of education as a sort of act of magic. And I read this amazing book when I was about 10 called The Wizard of Earthsea. And in it, a young magician is told the way you transform a rock into a flower is you must first know the name of the rock. A rock's real name is something like timeless energy, pressure, heat, minerals, rivers, ice, snow. It's got this beautiful, long, almost ants-like quality to it. And when you know the name of the rock, you can perform the act of transformation 
to the flower. Or if you have a flower, maybe you can transform back the other way to the child who needs to be more of a stone. But unless you know their real name, you can't engage in what we're talking about, which is nurtured risk. So it's understanding the nature of the child and what their potential is. And I think the best educators know that. And the world is full of amazing teachers who know the real name of each of their children. And if you do, then it's, if you ask them, it's much less of a risk to the child they know than the child who's a stranger to them. I love that. Um, the idea of nurtured risk is something that sounds attainable. It, it doesn't sound as if it's so large that we wouldn't know where to begin. But for teachers who are considering the idea of nurtured risk, where do you tell them to begin? I think this might be something which helps teachers understand that we're not talking about something that's miraculous and impossible to achieve. We began very slowly because the children's first ask of us was that we made learning compulsory. And there was a really lovely experience we all had, which was we started with that compulsory, but with an understanding in our heads that if a child began to show self-sufficiency and self-determination, we as adults wouldn't intervene. So one child, and I'm not sure how much this is going to help, but I'll tell you the story anyway, because sometimes the story, as Mike says, is, is really you play with the story and you internalize it and, and uh, you find its own meaning for yourself. This young girl who subsequently became a musician and a writer refused to come to my history class. And I was really happy with that because it was clear that at that moment in her life, it meant nothing. But what did mean a lot was sitting in a kitchen because we we're this early stage, we were on the ground floor of a, an old derelict farmhouse. She sat in the kitchen next to a, a, an arga, a sort of old-fashioned cooker, all snuggled up with a cup of tea, her book and her guitar, and she played songs and she wrote music. And the children in the second school meeting, second week in, said, Alice has to be suspended because she's not going to all her classes. And we as adults said, really? But she's doing something really important. She's, isn't she educating herself? And they said, no, we agreed on this and we think it's, you know, it potentially becomes something which we wouldn't be able to control because it would become chaotic. And they suspended her for a day. And when she came back, she came in front of a, a school meeting and she said, why did you do that to me? Why did you not see that what I was doing was important, as important as being taught by an adult? Why is it that you believe learning has to come out of an adult for it to be valuable? And they, and they all had this huge wake-up call that what we have to do before we engage with this concept of the nurtured risk of learning is define what learning is. And what we're truly talking about in democracy is we've democratized what's considered valuable. Sitting in a tree, reading Lord of the Rings for three weeks is as valuable as going to a maths lesson with a maths teacher as valuable as climbing on a climbing wall, riding your bike and mastering it, or sitting on a sofa engaging in a deep conversation with your friends. And democratizing the value of learning allows children then to make real choices, because normally what happens is the value system is pyramidal, in which the thing that is considered most important is that coming out of a teacher. If you start from the standpoint that it's only you that can make learning valuable, of course you're never going to release the children into choice 
Because when they're not with you, you're thinking that what's happening isn't going to help them progress and become capable. So I would really ask teachers to look at democratizing their attitude to what all learning can be in terms of its future potential for improving capability. Let me take a second to tell you about the sponsor that's made today's show possible. GoToScience is a platform for pre-K through second grade students that allows them to learn all different aspects of the curriculum through scientific inquiry. Students absolutely love it and they get to go on adventures all around the world without leaving their classroom. Every month we give away a free one-year subscription to GoToScience and all you have to do to get it is to send us either a tweet or a Facebook message. Our Twitter account is ed, the number four, betterworld.com telling us why you think you deserve a free one-year subscription to GoToScience. Every month, we choose one lucky listener, so good luck. Now, let's get back to the show. That gives us a new layer to consider. That democratizing education means that the values of learning are democratized as well. You talked about decisions that were made in the school. Tell us more about that process. So when I... When I spend time at university and I go and do a little bit of lecturing and work at university, what I notice in the British system, I don't know what it's like in the US, is that the first year and often the first term, young people look like they don't know how to make decisions for themselves. They don't know how to keep themselves healthy. They don't know how to make decisions about alcohol consumption or relationships. Something seems bizarre that if we say that somewhere between the age of 18 and 21, when you come into your majority, you somehow magically acquire the ability to be adult. And I think that means that we learn to be responsible and be able to make decisions for ourselves and others, that we see a catastrophic lack of that. So our sense as a school was that when's the moment when you allow a child to make decisions? And my experience as a dad and before being a dad was that when my three-year-old was in a sand pit, they were really, really good about making decisions and problem solving, sharing the sand pit with a friend, digging tunnels, working out problems, resolving problems, and they were never bored. And as my children grew older and they went through our school system with myself and my wife, they seem to continue to have this capacity to make decisions and take responsibility for them. And by the time they were 14, they were behaving like the 21-year-old who'd only just begun to reach that point of maturity and adulthood. And it seems to me that if we create education systems that are meant to educate in a three-dimensional way, isn't one of those educations decision-making and responsibility and choice. How do you do that? Does it happen naturally? Clearly not, if we look at our 19-year-olds. So maybe it's a matter of nurturing and developing that in a school system which allows children to be decision-makers, and maybe the 11-year-old is making decisions that are appropriate to 11, but they're still real and powerful. And by the time they're 15, they're making more appropriate deeper decisions maybe about the curriculum and exams, and taking those risks that make the decisions feel real. So what we're really doing is extending the concept of learning deeper into the human psyche and the human condition, rather than leaving it somehow superficially at the level of the brain, and really only the academic brain. We believe that if we're going to educate the whole child, 
And often this is a non-interfering education, but if we are going to interfere, shouldn't it be first understanding what makes a young person capable? And there is no way that we can ignore the concept of how you develop opinion and decision-making skills. Hence, we have a school in which everything is discussed unless it's deeply personal and confidential and a child or an adult needs it dealt with in a different way. Everything from the selection of teachers, from the selection of curriculum and how we move forward, how we spend surplus budget when we've got extra disciplinary issues. All this is, offers us opportunity for children to develop sympathy, empathy, and the power to decide. That is extremely powerful. And as an educator, I feel uh, that quite often this compulsory curriculum is sometimes taking all of democratic voice from the teacher as well, but allowing students to make those decisions makes sense. It really does. And with that, do you see less behavior issues in your school? Do you see less students having personal um, unhealthy choices being made? So the first thing we see is the first thing we hear is that children share with us pretty much everything that concerns them. So I don't think that it make, makes our children angels. In fact, we get to know that they are mad, bad, sad, and far from it at times because every child is. The difference is that they share that with us because they trust us. We do have bullying. I don't think it's at the level of other schools, but we are a small school. And being a small school, I think we managed to avoid issues, not because we're talented and brilliant, just because we were brave enough to stay at a human scale. I think we see everything from kids with drug abuse, children with mental health issues, eating disorders, self-harm. We see everything. I suppose the difference would be if we accept that this is the journey many young people go on, we don't ignore it. We see that helping them come through that is what makes them better learners and more capable so we embrace it and we're not frightened of talking about it with them or discussing it at the school so i don't think we are some magical haven although on a beautiful sunny day when children are in a treehouse and they're sitting on the sofa and they're also working really hard and doing beautiful art it does feel a bit wonderful but at the same time as that's happening i know a child is probably talking to a teacher about self-harm issues or drug abuse we do have children from 11, sometimes nearly to 18. Without being mercenary, we're prepared to see that as part of the opportunity of learning rather than interfering with the delivery of an education which is essentially brain-based. And I would say we're dealing with hearts, minds, and souls. And I'm really happy to say that I actually love those children and they feel like they're an extension of my family. And the school at its best is somewhere between an amazingly dysfunctional family in a university where children are way beyond their capability because we don't prevent them from being brilliant by testing them only at their age range. But it's also sometimes crazy and very real, which the children love. And you, we sometimes have to be on our best metal to deal with the craziness of 75 very happy children. It sounds like what life is, just a beautiful mess, right? And a learning experience. And and, you know, so many times I've heard teachers talk about how they wanted school to reflect real life. And it seems like the school you've created is real life in a school. So let me tell you a tale which 
is at the heart of some of my practice. That probably 15 years into my teaching, I taught a girl with cystic fibrosis and she wasn't going to make it to 19. So school was life. When she came, what we all agree, and I think what everyone agrees who cares, was that school should feel real. And if you come to school and have to put reality on, because someone tells you if you do it well enough, you'll have a good life later, isn't that cheating a child of life? So for me, that young girl with cystic fibrosis taught me that my lessons should feel like an extension of life, not life on hold. And what you're describing, Mike, is that dysfunctional, crazy, loving, sometimes bonk, sometimes crazily brilliant place is what makes it worth coming to school when you're dying. That's the takeaway that I will, that I will cherish after this conversation. What makes it worth coming to school? I just need to, I need to chew on that for just a little bit. <laughs> it's so good. Sean, what happens when students get it wrong? What happens when, uh, within the decision-making process, a bad decision is made at the school? We shouldn't be frightened of giving a community of children and adults, some of whom are 11, some of whom are like me, 57, giving them choice. Because guess what? If you get it wrong, you can choose to do it better. So we had a problem. Our school meeting, which is convenes every Wednesday morning and sometimes Wednesday after lunch if the weather's bad, um, we meet and we talk about everything. And what came up at this particular meeting was that uh, children, and children and staff were coming late to class because they were going across to a convenience store to get Coca-Cola, crisps, chocolate, and, this, and everyone in the school behaved like a really good parent and all were horrified and said how terrible this was. It was interfering with children's progress and it shouldn't happen again and staff should be more professional. And so we all agreed. The majority raised their hands to say that from now on, that activity was banned. We closed the meeting to go to class and half the school went to the convenience store for chocolate and drinks. <laughs> I love it. Because they were thirsty and hungry and class wouldn't work at all if people were sitting there paying attention to something other than what we were trying to do. And it's Mary Douglas who, who talks about Roots of Empathy says, if you're going to educate a child, you need to know what they're paying attention to. Don't assume they're paying attention to you. Maybe you need to know they might be paying attention to fear, hunger, a boyfriend who's dumped them, a girlfriend who's dumped them, sadness, um, drug abuse. Often it's just hunger and tiredness. And if you're going to do the magic of transformation within your classroom, then first know what they're paying attention to. And what was clear was everyone's paying attention to a fundamental need, which was that they were thirsty and hungry. They sorted that out. So then we agreed that you could take that risk to go to the shop and get those things, but the class had the right, if you were more than 10 minutes late, to deny you access. If they thought you were being disrespectful and taking advantage of this liberty, then you might be denied access. But if you came in quietly, um, this class might decide it was completely fine and appropriate, given the nature of the learning, that being more than 10 minutes late would be fine. And we found as a result that everyone was 
it's coming to class within three or four minutes of the start. Most were there at the beginning. Even the staff, amazingly, were there often at the beginning of their own classes, which was a bit of a miracle. And it was just common sense that if you're hungry, sort your hunger out first. And I often have children in class who will actually put a hand up and say, Sean, I'm really hungry now. Can I go and make a piece of toast? And guess what? It doesn't disrupt the class. The thing that was going to disrupt it was the hungry child who felt as if a basic need was not being maintained. Of course, they might miss five minutes, so they come back in. I can catch them up in 30 seconds quietly, and the class runs smoothly. And what we see are children realizing that adults of all aspects of their life are respecting their needs. If they take advantage of that liberty, of course, there's an issue probably with their own peers who go, why do you think you've got a right to, dis to disturb my learning? Because this was my choice to put the hand, my hand on the handle of Sean's door and enter. That was my choice. How dare you disrupt my choice and my efforts? So I think when you combine those two, a choice to enter class, you have a really powerful tool to help children behave because their classmates, their peers are often the monitors of it because they're protecting their own learning choice. What strikes me as really powerful about that story is what that would look like in a school that wasn't democratic. So if you had students coming late to class, there would be a policy that was developed from high above at the administration level. And if that decision was wrong, there's no way for students or for the people being affected by that policy to change it. I think that, I think you're right, Mike. I think that some of these things don't work where we have economies of scale. It could be done with great intelligence and with a deeper knowledge of the children. Um, more resources would be needed. Um, but what, I'm, what I think in terms of what we're doing is SANS, um, and I've got endless respect for people who are working in these ginormous industrial institutions, which our schools are, and, and they're often better teachers than all of us. But what we can do if we remain courageous at the human scale is at least we can act as this experiment, which can be done to the ultimate degree, so that at least we can see that if given the right conditions, children are amazingly trustworthy and want to learn, we can challenge the conventions and stereotypes. But we've got to accept that we've chosen to do this at the human scale, sort of so the experiment is possible to take to its final degree maybe what we're looking at is diluted versions of that respectful choice we've made to take tiny salaries, but to remain pioneering at this human scale level. So we have time for one more question, Sean, and it is the same question that we ask of all of our guests. We're gonna put you on the spot and ask you in one or two sentences, how can we change education to create a better world? If you continue to ask children to take this journey of nurtured risk, we will have children who develop the empathy to make wiser decisions. However we understand nurtured risk, it can be applied in all sorts of situations creatively. I would ask that we encourage teachers to think about what nurtured risk could look like in their classrooms. Thank you for joining us today. Please visit our website at edforbetterworld.com. That's ed, E-D, the number four, betterworld.com for show notes and to learn more about inviting Mike and I to lead a workshop for your teachers. And don't forget to check the other podcast-related goodies.
We want to thank Sean Bellamy for being a guest on today's show. Credit for the music on the show goes to Midair Machine. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and that it gave you some new ideas and perspectives. Through education and action, we can create a better world. Until we're together again, continue to dream big. And affect positive change.